Welcome to Modern Career. I'm your host, Mary Humiston. You may be thinking about changing, advancing, or even reinventing your career. We want to help you do that and live your full potential. In each episode, I cover work and career topics, leveraging my 30 plus years of global HR leadership and through interviews with other career experts and professionals from around the world. Subscribe today and visit modern-career.com for blog posts, career stories, career coaching and workshops, and more. Let's jump into our next episode. Welcome to New Rules for Success to Make It to the C-Suite. What it takes to navigate a career and make it to the top of an organization into the C-Suite is different than it used to be and will continue to change and evolve. If you aspire to lead at this level, knowing what it takes is key. Some may think it's tenure or luck or even politics that matter. Let's unpeel this to gain some new insights for what it takes to be most successful. Our guest today is Dan Kaplan. Dan is a senior client partner for Corn Ferry's Chief HR Officer Practice. Dan has over 20 years of expertise in leadership and organizational consulting, advising CEOs, investors, boards, and industry leaders on all aspects of the talent landscape. He's also held multiple leadership positions at other major search firms, as well as leading recruiting in-house at several large organizations. He was one of 30 global participants in the World Economic Forum's Talent Mobility Summit, and he also has been named one of Business Week's World's 50 Most Influential Headhunters. Welcome, Dan. Thank you so much for joining us. Absolutely, Mary. Thank you so much for having me. It's really a privilege to be here and to have the chance to have this conversation. Well, I know we're going to cover a wide range of topics. Maybe we start with, I'd love to hear a little bit more about your background and what led you to this particular focus and your career experience in talent and search. And oh, by the way, do you even mind it being called a headhunter? Is that an old term or <laughs> how does that fit in today? Sure. So I'll take the easy one first. I don't mind being called a headhunter. I think it's still an appropriate term. And I think at the end of the day, companies are expecting that we're going to go out and proactively hunt for the best talent. I think it's an appropriate name. I've been at this now for 23, 24 years. It gets scarier each time I add a digit. But I started out as something of a generalist. And I found, Mary, that the most meaningful conversations I was having were with my HR clients. I went in-house and I saw what great HR looked like. I saw what it was like in an organization while HR had aspiration to be great, but the business didn't have an appetite. I saw companies that drove to be great and companies that drove to maintain the status quo and realized that my calling was back on this side of the desk. And interestingly, I was really doing principally private equity. And I found that most of the funds, and the funds tend to be a little bit quicker and shrewder and smarter in the way they go about the world. And the funds were early adopters into recognizing that HR truly mattered. And all of a sudden, many of the CHROs that we most respected over the last 20 years, the legends, if you will, were gravitating towards private equity. And we found, I found that my conversations with my fund clients were principally around critical HR and talent issues. And so that inspired me about, at this point, 15, 16 years ago to pivot and focus exclusively on HR. My sense at the time was the function was ready for a major inflection moment. And maybe it took a little longer to get here, but 
the function was ready to really become the critical function it had long wanted to be and long needed to be. And it was ready for transformation. And there was a new generation of CHROs that were starting to really shine. And there were still too many companies and CEOs who didn't have the right appetite for it. And so a bunch of forces came together that caused me to gravitate towards doing just HR. And I now do most CHRO work, most of it even in private equity, because the funds still are at the forefront of focusing around people and talent issues. But this is where I've been now for the better part of 15 years. That's awesome. Of course, I think it's a great space. <laughs> but so your current focus is HR leadership at the C-level and chief HR officers. And yet, tell me if you agree with this, but what we're going to talk about will likely apply more broadly to functional leaders aspiring to an executive leadership team, a global management committee, C-suite. Is that fair? That is fair. And really, as the way I think about it, Mary, the world has changed more in the last 24 months than I think any time in most of our connected lives. And if you think back, it started with Brexit. It started with some of the meltdown of some of the emerging global economies, some of the emerging markets, some of the Latin American countries, some parts of Africa. Then you had COVID. Then you had social unrest. We still have COVID. You had the need for the world to find a new way of working successfully. And what it's really done is, yes, it has made the HR role different and more critical, and it's made this a critical inflection point. But more importantly, it has caused the need for a new kind of leadership. In your intro, you talked about the tricks to get to the top, and it's long been talked about maybe it's tenure, luck, or politics. It was easier for tenure, luck, and politics to play a part when we were all sitting in offices together, and proximity to the CEO mattered, and the quality of the tailoring of your suit mattered, and who was able to travel with the CEO or the business unit leader. All of that has gone away. It's sort of been stripped down, and what's left behind it is substance matters. It probably matters more than it's ever mattered before. Competency is critical. And that is true whether you are a finance executive, a general manager in supply chain. If you are leading people and you are what we've used for years, the concept of an empty suit, empty suits were able to thrive by playing politics when everyone was in the normal working order. In the last 14 months, empty suits were exposed. And if you were working from home and you were being productive and your boss, manager, leader didn't bring substance, you knew it and people no longer have the patience for it. And if your leader didn't have empathy, you no longer had the patience for it. They lost their troops, if you will. And so I do believe that what we have seen the last couple of years will have a profound impact on what leaders need to be. HR will have an important part in helping to institutionalize that in their enterprise. But for any aspiring leader, I think the table has been reset. That's fascinating. And I agree with you on both points. I'd love to dig in on the substance matters. What does that look like? How do you... And how does one think about that and prepare themselves to have maybe the competency goes, I'm sure they're highly correlated. You got to have deep expertise and competency. And is that substance or is it bigger than that? So I think it's substance. It's also bigger. It's recognizing and we've all seen that individual in a company who creates fantastic PowerPoint presentations and can get up in front of a room and wow, and maybe take credit for other people's work, or maybe don't know half of what they're talking about, but they're great at presenting or a PowerPoint. You couldn't do that really the last 15 months. And people now have a radar up for who are the leaders that understand their business, understand their function, and could lead from afar. It takes more to inspire people when you don't get to see them and you don't get to take them for lunch and you don't get to see them after hours. And so one of the ways you're going to inspire your people is by actually knowing what they're doing, knowing what the job is, able to contribute, able to coach, and then underlying all of it is empathy. And so 
a combination of actually knowing your job, being really good at it, bringing the technical expertise, being able to coach people from afar in even some technical areas where it's not as easy to just get in front of a whiteboard and teach. It's not as easy to have someone else do it. If individuals don't have that expertise, it's been really well exposed. And does that, in your mind, change the landscape of who the pipeline for talent is? Meaning, is it maybe more broadly diverse than it used to be because of that? Is it narrowing? How does that change maybe who is in that pipeline? I think it actually broadens it. There have been studies done over the years, many of them on trying to understand the role that empathy plays in organizations. And there have been studies that have shown that one of the reasons, other than because it's the right thing to do, one of the major reasons to drive diversity is that it brings a different perspective. Women have proven in testing to have more empathy than male leaders. Individuals who come from underrepresented backgrounds or underprivileged backgrounds tend to be a bit more understanding and empathetic. And I do think the leaders of tomorrow have to be more human and more empathetic than maybe the leaders of the last 10 years. And the best leaders of today are the ones who have evolved and realized that you need to show empathy and you need to actually care for your people. And I think that will continue to widen the aperture going forward. Empathy, I think of it too on the individual as a leader level and also the organizational culture level, the psychological safety and having environments that promote those kinds of things, which has changed a lot. It has. And the interesting thing is we've all experienced the last 15, 16 months. We all stare at our cameras all day long. We all do Zooms. One of the things that most of us who have been around for a while know is that at times on video, it's easy to just jump into business. It's different when you're in a meeting room and you catch up on the weekend and you might catch up about each other's kids and you might talk about the restaurant you went to the night before. And there was even as you were getting down to business, there was an opportunity for humanity. It's very easy in task-oriented companies where everyone is really busy and everyone is jumping from camera to camera, Zoom to Zoom, for people to forget that. And they get on. And if you're a leader and you have a deadline, you get on, you get right to business. And if you don't take a minute to find out if people are feeling okay, if families are healthy, if they're feeling overwhelmed, if you just get to business, even something that minute can set a really bad tone. And then at an enterprise level, if you don't take the time to check in on people, and if you don't show care and concern, you're going to lose your followers. It's going to become a bigger issue as companies now try and force people back into offices. As we're working through the vaccines around the world, that empathy is going to continue to be key at every level of an organization. Are you finding, because I know you deal with very senior leaders, that not only are the incoming or mid-level pipeline generations who are up and coming in their careers demanding this, but are they coming with more humanity, you know, human skills? And are you finding that the skill is there as well? So it's a great question. I think the younger generations have a little bit more of it, and they've grown up in a world where relationships matter. The generation that is now, and there's all different labels for them, but this generation that's now just coming into the workforce all the way through to the first 10 years of the workforce, so figure 21 to 32-year-old or 35-year-old, they grew up in a world, especially in North America, shaped by 9-11, shaped by, unfortunately, school shootings. They've experienced so much that even though we grew up and some might remember the Cuban Missile Crisis, some might remember little things, it's very different than what this generation has grown up with. And they've grown up with mock shooting drills in schools. They've grown up with so much that they are naturally more empathetic. They actually look out for each other. 
They're more connected by social media. They like to connect each other and connect to each other. And this one gets to know this one's friend. And so in general, I think this generation is a little bit more naturally wired for it. And they're going to expect it of their leaders. And this generation, I think, as they become leaders, it's a little bit more natural to them. That's terrific. And do you find the questions that in search you're asking or CEOs or leaders ask of potential other C-suite candidates or boards ask, they're changing to reflect some of these new things or is that lagging? I think it's getting there. It's lagging a little bit. I would say it's probably, Mary, happening quicker in HR. And I do think there are lots of areas where the changes in leadership are broadly across all functions, all, I'd say, generically for all leaders. I do think in HR, there was this move that you'll recall years back where HR used to be called the people people. And it was almost a derogatory term that one of the founding fathers of HR, if you will, coined the term inside Pepsi that we're not here to plan the company picnic inside GE and the best HR systems. There was a deliberate move to show that HR could be tougher than the toughest business leaders and make the tough decisions and be business architects more so than the people ambassadors. And what has changed over the last two years is the best HR leaders became the heartbeat of the company. And they are the culture carrier. They have been part-time chief medical officer. And many organizations have hired CMOs to report to the head of HR because they need to look after the health and well-being of employees. They have been part-time therapist. They have been part-time truth teller to leadership. And there has been this shift away from CHO as the tough-minded, courageous consigliere to HR leader as the heartbeat of the company. And there is a softening. And the best HR leaders have demonstrated an amazing empathy and an ability to steer through both tough challenges and the softer challenges. And that has caused CEOs and others to recognize that they need that out of the HR function. HR now, in turn, can hold the mirror back out and make sure that the rest of the leadership roles are developing that same set of skills. So every function, of course, is going through its own journey and transforming as the world changes and they're all at different places. And as you said, prior to the last 24 months, HR as a function was going through an inflection point. And so you would say this accelerated it. And where as you look ahead, just conversations you have within your firm, what are the couple of functions? Is HR one of them? And what are the couple that are really, really key as we look ahead? And when I grew up in my career, it was finance and then through my journey, IT really came to the table. I mean, we remember it was IS and nobody really, you know, it's- IS, MIS, MIS reporting into yeah. the CFO for sure. And now digital, everything. But so where all are important, let's be really clear, but where are some of the focus areas being understood and respected? For sure. And it's really interesting, Mary. So we talk a lot to our clients about the idea that the finance function went from being the bean counter to a strategic partner. And it was in large part driven by Sarbanes-Oxley. And now most companies have right next to the CEO is a very strategic M&A-oriented, BD-oriented CFO who is part of the inner circle, engages with the board. IT, IS, whatever you want to call it, went through the same thing in the 90s. And print, it was a function that really wanted to be credible. And you heard things like seat at the table and fight over reporting relationship. And then because of the early e-commerce craze, Virtually every company has a really good CIO and they are engaged, they are strategic. The bar climbed, then digital officers came up. 
And what we're finding is the next great horizon. HR had really good CHOs like yourself who were pushing the function and trying to create the demand and some CEOs who naturally gravitated. But the last two years has been the defining moment for HR. And now if you are a CEO and you had a great HR leader for the last year and a half, you're very much aware that you have a great HR leader and how important they are and that you better cherish them and reward them. And if you didn't, you understand now that average isn't good enough. And for years, we would talk to CEOs who would say, my HR leader is okay, but, and that's fine. I can make do. I don't want more change. Now, okay just doesn't cut it. The other function that won't surprise you where we're seeing very much the same explosive demand is supply chain. And I'd say there's probably one other after supply chain, but because of the Amazon effect, every company now has to have better distribution. Every company has to be where clients are. Every company, there's troves of data around organizations that accelerated their digital footprint and their delivery capability through COVID. And I think brick and mortar will continue to be here in a different way. But in retail, consumer and the like, if you don't have a world-class supply chain and supply chain leadership team, and if you're not investing in the technology, you're falling behind. And then I would say the third, which is probably not as broad a trend, but there was so much politicization of COVID in the last 15 months that it eroded a lot of the confidence that people had in government, regardless of which side you're on. And what we found is it's almost a return to the 80s of Big Blue, where if you worked at IBM, you had trust of IBM, you knew they were looking after you, you knew that there was sort of a mutual, there was almost an agreement that I'm going to be here for a long time. And in turn, I'm going to look out for the company, the company's going to look out for me. And we found that the best organizations in the last 14, 15 months kind of played that part. People would turn on the news and depending on what your personal political bias was, you were getting one side of the news or the other, and it wasn't particularly objective, and at times it wasn't particularly candid, companies filled that gap. Oh, that's interesting. Yes. And we saw companies directly dealing with the CDC and directly dealing with healthcare companies so that they could bring the best expertise to their employees. And some of the best organizations were having daily, if not weekly, calls with the best health leaders so that they could advise employees on their own health, their family's health. And then broadly, instead of turning on the news and hearing one version of masks versus the other, now one version of vaccine versus another, you knew that your company didn't have a political slant. They just were looking after their assets and giving you the truest information. And because of that, we have seen explosive demand for companies to really beef up their internal healthcare expertise. That's really interesting. And so... Defining moment for HR, supply chain, and HR is sort of like a big talent supply chain in many ways, and this cultural, organizational, internal health, and other aspects of that. What about CEOs and CEO transformation? Because I am curious about how just the role itself is changing. And when you said early on, they don't really have an appetite for this and an appetite for that, but yet they need to have an appetite for some of these things or you're caught out, you said. So has there been enough focus on CEOs and the transformation of CEOs in your mind? Yes, a great question. And I'm not sure. It is interesting. We were able to witness really good leadership from many CEOs over the last 15 months and some really great inspiring messages around focus on family, work from home. We can be productive. Companies have largely outperformed expectations, which is why I think most experts believe the economy is now in strong rebound. And yet now we're finding some of the more progressive CEOs are embracing work from anywhere, hybrid flexibility, creativity, putting employees first. And we're seeing also a rebound of other CEOs who 
may have grown up in a different generation where being in the office was really critical. They define corporate culture as what's in the office. And many of these offices are built as temples to the brand. And we're starting to see this natural tension of companies saying, okay, everyone, July 4th, come back, or June 15th, you have to be back, or whatever arbitrary date. And I think it's going to be a challenge over the next 90 to 120 days to see if we can find the right balance and CEOs will take advice and listen and take more than their own counsel and listen to the organization's heartbeat, not just their own personal wishes and beliefs. But I think the jury's still out a little bit. Do you find there's still an aspiration, broadly speaking, towards being part of a senior leadership team in the C-suite like it used to be? Is that changing? Do people want still to lead from those roles and have that responsibility and go even beyond that? Is that has that changed? It's a really interesting question. And it's not something that I've personally studied. We're doing some studies on it now. And there are some anecdotal signs suggesting that COVID has been a little bit of a reset for people. At all levels. Even people are saying, maybe I'd like to do something different or... Correct. We've had people, hey, I want to do something different. We've seen people not willing to take a role because the commute was 15 minutes more than they had, and they're just not willing to be away from their family, even for an extra half hour a day. We've seen people very quickly pick up and relocate. We've seen others say, you know what, this has been such a shock to the system. My focus is family over career, and I'm not going to relocate. And if it means I'll take a little bit of a pay cut, that's fine too. We have seen some individuals say, you know what, having watched what the leadership team had to endure the last 15 months and understanding now what either my boss's job is or my boss's boss's boss, I'm pretty happy where I am. I'm not sure I want to be in one of those roles. And then just the same, we've seen others say, I've seen good leadership. I can do better. I want to be a part of helping guide the company through. So I think it's still a little early to tell, but for sure, we have seen some indications that people are changing their priorities. I think so. I think some of the research on stress during this, as you say, 24-month period has been distributed at all levels, more stress than ever. And I think, what do you think about this part too, that there are no playbooks anymore? I mean, as we came through our early part of our career, you, not that there was a formal one, but you knew how to approach situations and this is what you did. And today, all of that is changing. So there's so much change around you, but what you go to use, you kind of have to be super agile because you're creating it as you go. Yes. And by the way, that's the key word. So when I think about what the leaders of the future need to possess, agility is number one. And we used to talk about the ability to see the ripple effect and see around corners and anticipate trends. Now it's a little bit less that it's more just having the agility to recognize that one size isn't going to fit all. What's worked in the past may not work in the future. And the world, we always tend to think big events are going to cause world change. And then over time, we have short memories and things go back more to normal. I do think there are changes that are here to stay. It will be tough for organizations to force their employees and build the case that people need to commute into work on a Friday, especially in a big city, and spend hours in each direction in traffic when they've been very effective working from home for the last 15, 18 months. And so to make the argument that, no, Fridays are so important to be in the office and you need to commute in rush hour in L.A., San Francisco, Chicago, Miami, New York, employees are just going to say no. There are certain levels, even office expectations. I'm not sure, Mary, the next time you'll see an office where everyone's wearing a tie. 
I think we'll go to an environment where ties are going to be the bow tie of the 1960s. Oh, that's so interesting. And so if you're hung up as a CEO that everyone needs to be dressed, you have to accept that the world has changed and there's going to be an agility. And even as you think about getting people back to the office, as you know from the functions you've led over the years, especially young professionals coming out of school, their first job, they're living with college roommates, but they go to work and they end up going to lunch with colleagues, dinner, happy hour with friends. They start dating people they're working with and through their friend network. Usually by year two, three, four, their roommates are people they work with and their entire adult ecosystem becomes through work. That group, some of them were in college their senior year in their dorm. They now have started jobs. They haven't been in an office or other young professionals have had that ripped away from them. They want to be back in office. And to an extent, they need it for their own social development. And so recognizing that maybe that generation needs something different than the early 30s professional that has young kids at home and has had to endure this without home care for much of it. Their kids weren't in school. They're going to have a different view about whether they want to be in an office. And if they have a set of skills that is particularly in demand, they're going to opt to go to a company where they just don't have to be in the office or don't have to be in the office as much. Leaders are going to have to have this agility to figure out what works, how do they maximize the employment experience at every different level of the talent ecosystem, and then make it work within their culture. What kinds of experiences then matter? C-suite's one thing, but it's you want to advance, if you want to continue to grow as far as you can grow, used to be these kinds of things would be good to do. And then there was always this perception of how fast you should move. I mean, it was always too fast (laughs) when I was coming up. We all thought so, but we did it anyway. It was every 18 months, if you don't move around. And what is it today, or as you look forward, what could someone think about that strikes that balance between the right growth, the right pace for advancement towards the C-suite? That is interesting because I do think that notion, and even on our side of the desk, we used to measure the rate of promotions and we'd always call out to a client, well, they spent 12 years at this organization and they got promoted every X months and you're at 18 months tended to be the threshold. and For good? For good. And if you saw someone at one company for eight years and they're only promoted once, that was usually a flag and we'd have to kind of vet that out. I think there's been a little bit of a reset. I think it's now going to be more around quantifiable value. And that value will be different if you're in finance and maybe it was around deals that you led or diligence that you led. In supply chain, it might be around a technology you implemented or some other measurable, quantifiable impact in supply chain. In HR, it will more and more be measured around where you were truth teller. Were you able to speak truth to power at the levels of the organization that were relevant? Did you help? make leaders show up as their transparent self and as the best version of themselves. And so I think it's going to be more measured around specific value and deliverables. The ability to step up and lead increasing larger teams will continue to be really relevant. The rate of promotion, I'm not sure, is going to be as measurable. And one of the things that we don't quite know yet, Mary, we'll have to look back and see is, did promotions take a hit because of COVID? Are we going to look back and realize that a lot of people stayed in role And now instead of getting promoted every 18 months, maybe they're not going to get promoted for three or four years because of COVID and because the market imploded at first and companies may have scuttled some of their talent management practices. It's a little early to tell, but I do think we're going to focus more on measurable impact than just promotions on a sheet of paper. And that's part of your substance point too, I think. Correct. Are the majority of C-suite entrants still coming from within an organization 
versus maybe being hired in? I mean, I know it's a broad question because it can vary a lot by industry and company and geography, but what's it looking like now or ahead? So it's a broad question, and I would say it's different by role, function, and type of company. And so the data continues to show that as much money as companies invest in their succession planning and CEO search, that a larger percentage of CEOs in the Fortune 1000 grow up internally versus coming in from the outside. There are obviously very notable exceptions, but that continues statistically to be the majority. At other leadership functions, we continue to see companies really investing in both developing their people, but also supplementing from the outside. And I expect we'll continue to see almost a 50-50 mix. And there are some roles and functions where you need people who have been who've grown up in the company and have that inside experience and know how to make things work. And even if maybe it's a niche business and the expertise is best developed in-house and usually supplemented with some key strategic hires from the outside. Where we're actually seeing the largest shift is private equity. And I do think one of the natural byproducts of the last two years was many of the funds had a view that if you didn't have the right leadership in every role, you weren't going to navigate the challenges of the world as well. And part of it is, in some ways, talent physics. If you're a Fortune 500 company and you have a weak leader at the top or any of the roles in the top, it takes a lot to really disrupt the pathway of a great big storied enterprise. If it's a smaller business and you have a wrong leader in one of the seats, it could do irreparable damage and it can really be tough to overcome that. And so there's probably been more focus in private equity of going outside for best in class talent than we've ever seen before. Makes sense. And you have clearly interviewed so many candidates over the years at all levels, but the senior level. Anything stand out for you? We've talked about some of these areas, but anything come to mind where just Dan, you know, you really, something stands out for you. Yeah. So I'll give you a good and a bad. Good is humility. The best leaders have empathy. They have humility. They can talk about their protégés with passion and they have protégés. They have following. They have individuals that they are prouder of their growth and accomplishments than their own. And when an individual has a great track record, but they're focused all around their own track record and they don't have following and they don't have protégés that they can speak to, to me, that's a big, big red flag. And then the other is, you've done this so many times too, I've done it so many times, I want unvarnished perspective. I understand that it's an interview, but we're two people sitting around a room getting to know each other. And when I feel like there is a show being put on, when you feel like there are answers that are being glorified, lost over, when someone doesn't have a failure any time in their career, we've all failed, we've all screwed up. When someone has had a perfect track record, to me, that is the biggest red flag. You get to a point to your comment, after doing a few thousand, the radar goes off pretty quickly. And then you don't want to jump to conclusions. So then there's a series of questions that you start to ask to really dig. But yeah, I think most of us who have been around for a long time, and by most of us, it's headhunters. It's also the best HR leaders are talent magnets and have this great judgment around people. Part of it is you have sort of a sniffer where you can start to feel when you're being snowed. Dan, culture fit is still something that's assessed. And we, as we look for our own jobs, we should be assessing it too, because we want to fit wherever we're going, whatever that means. And I find this one always very tricky because I never think it should be so scientific because we're all trying to evolve and grow as cultures. But any tips for evaluating whether a company is a good fit or from 
a recruiter's point of view, looking at a candidate? How do you know? By the way, I agree with you on the science. Our scientists will challenge me on that. But really, <laughs> there are certain things that are hard scientifically to qualify. The hardest part about qualifying cultural fit is most companies actually don't know what their culture is. And leaders, as they think about hiring into their culture, tend to be aspirational. And so they paint a picture for themselves and for us and for candidates of what they want their culture to be. And it's usually a panacea. And so step one is trying to get a company to really understand what do they mean when they say their culture? What does it feel like? What does it smell like? Who are the culture carriers? What makes them culture carriers? And then going back to your opening line, are they culture carriers because they're really good at playing politics? Or are they individuals at every level of the organization that legitimately live and embody the culture the way the board and the leadership team want it to be embodied? Once you get that, then it starts to become a little bit easier to say, okay, well, let's peel that back and figure out what that means for an outside talent. I think in general, companies still use to some extent the old management consulting airplane test, which you probably remember. And the idea was, if I'm stuck on a plane with this person for eight hours, am I going to gnaw my arm off and open the plane door and jump out because I don't want to put on a parachute because I can't spend another minute? And that was sort of how they defined culture. Now, people still will talk about culture, but it, a lot of it is when I interviewed this person, did I like them? And would I feel like I'll be a friend with them, which still isn't enough to say, hey, it's a fit or a company you should join. The advice that I always give my clients is, Really try and dig down to what your culture is. What does it mean? What does it feel like? There is a feeling to it. And then we give candidates the same feedback. Don't take for granted what they're saying about their culture. You have to kind of find a way to experience it. I love that. And I think you're right. Fit often can be perceived as today and just the way we are, but most are in that aspirational stage of looking ahead and how do you really want to be and live because the world keeps changing. I love that. So, Dan, two. I'm going to try a twofer here. <laughs> What's a piece of advice you might give someone as they're looking, again, to advance to senior levels and maybe be part of a leadership team, a C-suite, and operate at that level? Is there a piece of advice that we haven't yet covered? And then maybe second, What's a piece of career advice, something that may have stuck with you or that you lived or experienced more personally? Yeah. And I'd say the two answers are probably the same. And I was given advice many years ago by a very good mentor of mine that nothing is done until the minute you've done it and delivered. And it was done in the context of, and I'll never forget, and this was a very good friend and a great mentor. And it was a CHRO who asked me about doing something. And I said, oh yeah, I did it this morning. And she stopped me and said, no, the right answer is you're going to do it this afternoon. And even if it's just five minute difference, if it's not done, don't ever say it's been done. And she was right. And somehow she called my bluff. Somehow she knew that it was on my to-do list and I hadn't gotten to it yet. And by the way, it was a very minor, insignificant task, but it has stuck with me for the 15, 18 years since. Until something is done, you never say it's been done. And I would say as part of it, there is also a leadership lesson and a, an executive lesson of never commit to something you can't deliver. And if you commit, you find a way to deliver it. And you have to be open and honest. And by the way, that holds true. We have seen CEOs get replaced because they committed to the street or to the board, something they couldn't deliver. We've seen senior leaders get dismissed because they committed to something with the CEO and couldn't deliver it. And that goes all the way down to the first job out of college or even that summer job in school or first job out of high school. If you commit to something, your job is to find a way to do it and then don't take credit until it's done. 
I love that. Uh, to me, that goes back again to substance and the genuine nature of leadership. I love it. Dan, thank you so much. There were so many great insights. I think we could continue on this topic quite a bit, but you've shared so much from your perspective, your wisdom, and your deep experience in this space. And really, we appreciate it. Thank you so much. Absolutely, Mary. Thanks for having me. It's so nice to catch up and spend this time. And again, a privilege to be a part of it. So thank you. For more resources on this topic, visit us on modern-career.com and on social media at modern underscore career. We'll include all the sources noted in this episode in our show notes. Look forward to talking again very soon. Mm -hmm.